Welcome to Cancer Care Connect Workshop. At this time, all participants are in the listen-only mode. During the workshop, you will hear from our panel of expert speakers. We will allow time for questions and comments following the presentation. Instructions will be given at that time. If anyone should require assistance during the workshop, please press star then zero on your touchstone telephone. As a reminder, this workshop is being recorded. I would now like to introduce to your moderator for today's workshop, Dr. Carolyn Messner, Senior Director of Education and Training. Please go ahead. Oh, thank you so much, uh, Sadie. And I too would like to welcome everyone to today's Cancer Care Connect workshop, updates in the treatment of ER positive, PR positive, and HER2 positive breast cancer from the San Antonio Breast Cancer Symposium, or SABCS. And this is part two of Living with Breast Cancer. And I have to say that today's program is supported by Bristol-Myers Squibb, a grant from Genentech, an educational grant from Daiichi Sanko, Inc., and funding from Macrogenics. And I really want to thank them for their support of this program today. Now, we have over 300 participants on this workshop today, and you come from all over the United States, from both urban, rural, and suburban communities. And we also have international participants from Australia, Canada, China, India, Nigeria, South Africa, and the United Kingdom. So it's really a bit of a global call as well. And it's a credit to all of you that you've chosen to spend this next hour with us. And now it's my pleasure to introduce our first speaker. And our first speaker is Dr. Kamal Abu Hussein. Dr. Hussein is Assistant Professor of Medicine, Cooper Medical School, Rowan University, Lead Physician, Breast Medical Oncology, MD Anderson Cancer Center at Cooper. And Dr. Hussein will be addressing what's new from SABCS on ER, PR, and HER2-positive breast cancer in the context of COVID-19, Delta, and Omicron. Up updates from SABCS on diagnostic testing, precision medicine, graded hormone receptors, what's new in the standard of care, and a roadmap to prepare for telemedicine, telehealth appointments, including technology, listed questions, follow-up care, and discussion of open notes. It's my pleasure now to turn this program over to my esteemed colleague, Dr. Hussein. Thank you, Dr. Mesner. Hi, everybody. Uh, so this year's San Antonio Breast Cancer Symposium was an excellent meeting as usual with so many updates on uh, prior clinical trials and work that is currently being done to advance the field and improve the overall outcome, hopefully from the management of our um, patients with breast cancer. So the first topic that I would like to address is updates in the ERPR positive or hormone receptor positive breast cancer. So we see, we've seen updates from um, the use of the CDK4-6 inhibitors in the early stage and metastatic setting. So as we know, the cyclin-D kinase 4 and 6 inhibitors are oral medications that have established their role in the metastatic or the advanced setting, typically in combination with an endocrine therapy agent with great success uh, in significantly delaying disease progression and improving the overall survival of patients. Uh, in this uh, symposium, they presented an update for the Mona Lisa 2 clinical trial which showed a significant improvement in survival with the use of ribocyclib in addition to letrozole compared to letrozole alone in patients who are postmenopausal 
with hormone receptor positive HER2 negative advanced breast cancer. They showed that this survival benefit was independent of the size of metastasis. So by that I mean whether the disease involves the bones only or it involves other organs like the liver and lungs, and whether the disease involved one or two or more sites, um, and whether the patient has received chemotherapy previously or endocrine therapy, everybody seems to um, gain benefit from the addition of the, the treatment drug. So, so far, we've seen results from the Mona Lisa 2, the Mona Lisa 3, and the Mona Lisa 7 trials showing us a consistent improvement in overall survival from the addition of riboslycline, regardless of the endocrine therapy partner and whether it is used in the first line or second line of therapy. And it also showed the same benefit, whether it was used in premenopausal or postmenopausal women. So whenever something works in the metastatic or advanced disease setting, we try to move it to the early stage setting in the hope that we could improve the outcome for our patients and decrease the chances of the disease recurrence in the future. So there are um, a few trials ongoing in that um, domain. They presented an update of the PALACE trial, which was a negative trial. Now it showed that the addition of palbocyclic, one of, another one of the CDK46 inhibitors, two adjuvants endocrine therapy did not improve additional benefit or provide additional benefit when compared to endocrine therapy alone in patients with um, advanced hormone receptor positive breast cancer. Um, so by that I mean the locally advanced patients are patients who have stage two or stage three. So they are not metastatic, but they are having a locally advanced disease. Now, previously, we have seen a positive proven value from the addition of another one of the CDP46 inhibitors, the uh, bimacyclin, in the adjuvant setting when given to patients who are deemed to be high risk for recurrence for a period of two years postoperatively. And that was in combination with their usual hormonal therapy based on the results of the monarchy trial. So, we certainly look at certain high-risk features, which helps us identify patients who could benefit from this drug, including the number of lymph nodes that are involved. But we also look at the size and the grade of the tumor, along with other markers on the pathology report, uh, most notably a test that is reflective of the tumor cell proliferation called the KI-67. Uh, the third agent is also being studied, so riboslycline is being studied now in a trial uh, called Natalie, but that hasn't reported its results yet. Now, more information on the early stage hormone receptor positive uh, disease. So we know that tamoxifen reduces 15-year breast cancer mortality by one-third in ER positive disease. And we also know that the aromatase inhibitors are even more effective than tamoxifen in postmenopausal women. So they tried to clarify the role of suppressing the ovaries or what we call ovarian function suppression uh, along with tamoxifen or along with aromatase inhibitors in women with premenopausal breast cancer. So they presented a review of a meta-analysis, so multiple clinical trials, which looked at more than 
7,000 patients exploring the most beneficial form of endocrine therapy in young premenopausal women. And those women had to have high-risk features, which included, um, which which could increase the risk of recurrence in the future. And those features could include lymph node involvement or the prior need for chemotherapy or being very young in age, so less than the age of 35. And they were able to show that the addition of ovarian function suppression was very beneficial. They showed us that aromatase inhibitors are superior to tamoxifen when combined with ovarian function suppression. And uh, superiority here is in decreasing the chances of recurrence in the future. However, we did not see a survival benefit from that approach. So I would like to point out that having said that, we still see very good results from the use of tamoxifen alone in patients who don't have the high-risk features. Uh, so they presented data that showed that the chances of disease-free survival was more than 95% when following those patients for 12 to 13 years down the line, which is definitely very reassuring to hear. Now, regarding the duration of endocrine or hormonal therapy, they presented uh, a study that looked at using aromatase inhibitors for seven years versus 10 years, and there was a suggestion that seven years is the right answer or sort of the sweet spot unless the patient has a high-risk feature that would require a longer duration of endocrine therapy. Um, also, we've seen updates from the R-Exponder trial, very important trial, that studied women who had hormone receptor positive disease with one to three positive lymph nodes and had a score on the oncotype of 20 to 25. And previously, we've seen the initial results of that important trial when they followed patients for a period of five years. Uh, they presented an update over a longer period of follow-up. Uh, so the period this time was 6.1 years. And it showed that postmenopausal patients continued to do well with endocrine therapy alone, while um, and, and no benefit from adding chemotherapy, while the group that derived benefit from the addition of chemotherapy continued to be the younger premenopausal patient population. Uh, they also showed very important information that benefit in that younger population was seen even with minimal or what we call microscopic lymph node involvement. Um, I know Dr. Wax is going to cover the research updates and updates in ongoing clinical trials. There are two very nice clinical trials that I just wanted to touch on uh, quickly. The first one is the Emerald Phase 3 clinical trial that looked at using a, an oral CERT or a selective estrogen receptor down regulator in an oral form called elacestrant, and they compared that to investigators' choice endocrine therapy for the ER-positive advanced or metastatic breast cancer following progression on endocrine therapy and a CDK4-6 inhibitor. Now, currently, the only available approved third is called fulvestrant, which um, a lot of us are familiar with, and it comes in an IM injection form. Now, this trial showed a meaningful reduction in risk of progression or death compared to the standard of care treatment and even more notable reduction 
in the same endpoints in patients with a mutation called the ESR1 mutation. Now, when they compared also the LSFestrin to the IM form, the one that is available for Vestrin, it also showed superior results. So overall, this trial is providing a promising, well-tolerated option with a manageable safety profile consistent with other endocrine therapy options that have the potential to become the new standard of care. Uh, the final overall survival analysis of the LSSTRAN versus standard of care endocrine therapy is expected to report its results um, uh, next year. Uh, the other trial that I wanted to quickly address is the PADA1 trial. So the results of the PADA1 trial looked at ESR1 monitoring, the same mutation that I mentioned earlier, in the blood with the, the circulating DNA in order to optimize the endocrine therapy partner of CDK46 inhibitor. And it showed that upon ESR1 detection, the median progression-free survival was doubled by the switch from the combination of an aromatase inhibitor and palbocyclib 2 for vestrant and palbocyclib with no new safety signal concerns. So uh, that is what I wanted to address about the ERPR positive disease. Shifting gears to the HER2 positive um, subset, uh, they gave us an update for the Destiny Breast 03 clinical trial. So they presented new data from the key subgroup in the Destiny Breast 03 clinical trial, which is a um, phase three trial comparing the use of um, trastuzumab deruxtecan um, versus trastuzumab intensine, or what is known as TDM1, in patients with metastatic HER2-positive breast cancer. And they showed a, an improvement in progression-free survival across patient subgroups with an excellent benefit from the addition of the trastuzumab deruxtecan compared to the TDM1 and a significant improvement in the response rate. So just to give you an example, it, the, the numbers, they went up from the response rate from 34% to 80% in the trastuzumab deruxtecan group. They also showed that whether the patient had brain metastasis or not, and um, I think in this trial about 20% of the patients had evidence of what we call stable brain metastases, the um, trastuzumab deruxtecan resulted in greater efficacy compared to the TDM1R, and they also noted that the trastuzumab deruxtecan treatment was associated with a substantial intracranial response and a reduction in the central nervous system disease. So they were able to show that about 28% of the patients with intracranial disease were able to achieve um, complete response, so complete resolution of the brain um, lesions. And uh, in this trial, we did not see any um, high-grade interstitial lung disease um, or pneumonitis or inflammation of the lung tissue, which was a major concern about the drug in the early uh, phase trial results. And they also showed us an update in another very important trial, the HER2-CLIMB trial, which uh, looked at using a combination of tocatinib along with Herceptin and Capecitabine in the metastatic HER2-positive disease. And in this update, they reported a benefit in uh, the leptomeningeal disease uh, response. Now, that is defined as um, 
infiltration of the leptomeninges, which are the thin coverings around the brain that normally act as a barrier. So when those layers are involved with metastatic carcinoma, it is called leptomeningeal disease, which is a relatively uncommon but a devastating complication of many malignancies, unfortunately. So it was very encouraging to see that this combination is active in that subset, and they also showed a clear benefit in patients who have uh, CNS involvement with their disease. Um, it's still an open-ended um, uh, or an open-ended question, really, whether there is um, hardcore evidence to scanning the brain of every patient with metastatic HER2-positive cancer or cancer recurrence to detect any CNS involvement. Um, that is provided the patient doesn't have symptoms. So we don't know if this is the right practice or not. Uh, now, switching gears and talking about diagnostic testing and procedure medicine. So, you know, I always remind myself that breast cancer is a disease with the first targeted therapies based on what subtype of breast cancer is detected during that time of diagnosis. And that is, of course, dependent on the positivity of the ER, PR, and the HER2 receptors. And now we have numerous receptor-directed therapies that have dramatically changed the natural history of this disease. So we now know that cancers are unique, just like the individual patients who are afflicted by the disease. And this is where the concept of precision oncology comes in, where we as physicians try to treat each patient's cancer in a tailored fashion. So now we use tests called the NGS or next-generation sequencing, which can sequence billions of base pairs of DNA in a time and a cost-efficient manner. And those tests can detect rare mutations is the use of the oral drugs PARP inhibitors in patients who have the BRCA germline mutations. Uh, now we also have liquid biopsies with the ability to detect the cell-free DNA, which refers to the small DNA fragments that are shed by cells in the circulation and also the circulating DNA, which um, refers to the DNA shed specifically by the tumor cells into the circulation. Now, since we're focusing on the hormone receptor breast cancer category, which is, uh, by the way, the most common subtype of breast cancer, they reviewed in the symposium that the ER-positive breast cancer has wide genomic variabilities between tumors and that the intrinsic subtype, which means the degree of likeness to the gene expression uh, type, leading to the generation of different phenotypes of the, or different shapes and behaviors. And those subtypes behave and respond to therapies in a different way. So as an example, we do have subtypes called luminal A and luminal B subtypes. We also learned that the estrogenic environment affects the whole process of gene transcription, and they also talked about some important mutations like the TP53 that has a strong uh, effect on prognosis, um, and that dominates any other molecular profiling tests. Now, when hormonal or endocrine therapy stops working and the patient has evidence of disease progression, it is felt that the tumor is starting to become um, endocrine resistant, and there's a lot of interest and work that is being done in order to clarify different pathways of endocrine resistance development. 
And the main goal here is to identify new targets which could help us control the disease longer and also work to identify tumors that carry hot immune features. Uh, many presentations discussing the use of circulating DNA is um, in follow-up of metastatic disease to monitor the response to treatment and detect targets. For example, detecting the same mutation that we discussed, the ESR1 mutation, which portends resistance to aromatase inhibitors and possible need to switch to one of the estrogen receptor down regulators like fulvestrant and others. So overall, using circulating DNA technology as a prognostic marker and to drive um, treatment changes in the future. Uh, we've also seen presentations focusing mainly on the HER2 positive disease, and it's overall a confirmation that not all HER2 positive cancers behave in the same manner. We know that the hormonal status of the HER2 positive cancers impact the potential benefit from HER2-directed therapies in the metastatic setting, and it impacts the likelihood of having a complete response to chemotherapy um, along with anti-HER2 therapy in the early stage setting. So this is normally a combination that is administered preoperatively, and it also plays a role in time of possible disease recurrence in the future. So there are currently novel strategies that are being tested in this domain with the use of some um, agents, CDK46 inhibitors and uh, estrogen receptor down regulators um, and others. The whole concept of uh, HER2 heterogeneity, which means that you could get different results for the HER2 status or HER2 testing in different parts of the tumor which could lead to resistance to the anti-HER2 therapies, but it is exciting to see new molecules like, um, again, trastuzumab deroxycan, which can um, have a power of or property called bystander effect, where um, the drug could seep into the neighboring cells once it gains access to the HER2-positive cells, and that promotes delivery of the chemotherapy portion of the drug to the more to more cells surrounding HER2 Cells and likely improve the overall response. Uh, the last thing I want to talk about is the whole concept of HER2 low disease, which is sort of a subset of breast cancers that is between HER2 negative and HER2 positive based on the current guidelines for defining HER2 positivity. Um, now, this HER2 low is likely going to give us a new subtype of breast cancer, and currently there are multiple HER2 antibody um, drug conjugates that are being explored in this space. Um, my last couple of words are about telemedicine. So I think uh, we've all been heavily impacted by the effects of the pandemic, and the whole concept of virtual visits has gained a lot of popularity uh, since the pandemic started, and it's been very helpful for us and our patients to continue taking care of them in a safe way. So I do like a, a lot of aspects of telemedicine, and many patients report their satisfaction with how they're able to save time normally wasted driving over to the cancer center or in transportation or waiting in the lobby until they're roomed and they get to see their um, care team. But above all, this is helping us minimize exposure during this critical time. So it's always nice to meet up with your healthcare team from a comfortable setting um, at home and 
I always ask my patients to write down their questions that comes to mind between the visits so that we can go over it during those virtual visits. Um, I don't think that this is a replacement to the in-person visits as there are some limitations uh, to this approach like inability to do proper physical exam, um, but probably a hybrid model of both telemedicine and in-person visits is a reasonable approach as both approaches really complement each other. Uh, you could also choose to include a family member or a friend who acts as your advocate, like what we normally do in our regular office visits. Uh, with that, I'll finish my talk and uh, back to you, Dr. Mesner. Oh, thank you so much, Dr. Hussein. That was really excellent, really outstanding, and a really lot of information for people to um, to hear about SABCS. Really, it feels like we were there, and uh, so thank you so much. And I know there'll be questions to you during the Q&A. Thank you. And our next speaker is Dr. Um, Ada Wax, and Dr. Wax is staff physician, breast medical oncology, Dana-Farber Cancer Institute, instructor of medicine, Harvard Medical School. And Dr. Wax will be addressing updates from SABCS on hormone and targeted therapy, chemotherapy updates from SABCS, investigational new drugs and clinical trials, what's new in the prevention and management of treatment side effects, symptoms, discomfort, pain, neuropathy, and long-term effects. It's really my great pleasure now to turn this program over to my esteemed colleague, Dr. Wax. Thank you so much, Dr. Messner, and um, thank you, Dr. Hussein, for uh, giving a good sort of segue into a lot of the things that I'm going to talk about. Um, I'm very delighted to be here today talking to the cancer care community. So thank you. Um, thank you so much for having me. And, you know, particularly excited to report on exciting developments that absolutely we hope very soon will translate into important um, advances for our patients coming out of the San Antonio Breast Cancer Symposium that happened just last month. So the first um, topic that I will touch on um, is two uh, updates in hormone receptor positive metastatic breast cancer, which is to say uh, metastatic breast cancer that's estrogen receptor and or progesterone receptor positive. Um, and, you know, I think as Dr. Hussein mentioned, this is a subtype of metastatic breast cancer where we do see um, patients have good responses to antiestrogen medications combined with CDK4-6 inhibitors like pavacyclib, abemacyclib, ribocyclib, um, and that's been a wonderful development over the past uh, five to 10 years for our patients with metastatic um, hormone receptor positive breast cancer. But now the very important question is, what can we do for patients who have received a CDK4-6 inhibitor, done well, not, done well on it for, uh, we hope, a good long while, but then developed resistance to that therapy? Where do we go next? Um, in the second or third treatments that our patients get. And so I think two important results to highlight here. One was from the EMERALD trial, which Dr. Hussein already mentioned, um, and I fully agree uh, with him that this was a really important result coming out of SABCS. So the EMERALD trial was looking at a new drug called elastestrant, um, and it's, you can hear the name sounds kind of sim similar to fulvestrant, um, or Fazlodex, 
and fulvestrin is called a third, a selective estrogen receptor degrader, which is an, a type of anti-estrogen medicine. You usually get it once a month as a two shots, one in each buttock, um, and it's an effective therapy. But always, we're always looking to improve upon it, and also looking to give our um, our patients pill therapy instead of making them come in for shots. And so elacestrant is a member of a really exciting new class of drugs called oral thirds or oral selective estrogen receptor degraders, which are basically drugs that are trying to use and improve upon the mechanism of a drug like fulvestrant um, to offer a new type of oral pill form anti-estrogen medications to our patients. So elacestrant is an oral Third, similar to, but you know, hopefully better than fulvestrant. And patients who were enrolled in this trial um, all had metastatic hormone receptor positive breast cancer, all had previously received a CDK4-6 inhibitor. So these patients had already gotten and had to move on from palbociclib, abemocyclib, or ribocyclib, and then got randomized, as Dr. Hussein said, to either receive the elastestrant, which is a daily pill, or to a different um, anti-estrogen medication that their doctor chose for them, which could be fulvestrant or one of the aromatase inhibitor pills. Um, And the very exciting result from this trial was that the elastestrant, which was the new um, drug, it it showed better outcomes than the old standards, the fulvestrant um, or the uh, aromatase inhibitor pills. And in some cases, that was true even in patients who had previously received fulvestrant. Um, and so this was a really exciting uh, piece of progress for patients with metastatic hormone receptor positive breast cancer because our hope is that in the coming months this could translate into this new drug, elastestrant, um, being approved by the FDA um, as a new treatment option for patients with metastatic hormone receptor positive breast cancer. It's not approved quite yet, um, but um, I'm sure that the FDA is reviewing the data now to see if they'll be able to approve it. Um, and it would be, an, again, just an, a very exciting new treatment option for patients who have hormone receptor positive metastatic breast cancer and already received a CDK4-6 inhibitor. So that was one um, important and hopefully, you know, practice-changing update coming out of the, um, out of the conference. A second drug that looked um, potentially exciting, though is earlier on in its development, um, is a drug called Samoracyclib. And again, this is a drug that, at least in, in this SABCS, the researchers are looking at for patients who have metastatic hormone receptor positive breast cancer who already received um, and had to move on from a CDK4-6 inhibitor, which is to say palbociclib, abemocyclib, or ribocyclib. So again, um, you know, looking to do better for our patients with metastatic um, breast cancer who already received that very effective um, treatment initially, but have but now have to change to something else. So samoracyclib is a CDK7 inhibitor, so it's not inhibiting CDK4-6 like the standard drugs, but inhibiting a similar um, molecule called CDK7. Um, And in the trial that was reported at San Antonio, uh, the investigators, the researchers were combining samoracyclib with fulvestrin. So again, that's that anti-estrogen medicine that you receive as a shot in the buttocks. and basically, the, it was a pretty small trial. It's a pretty early drug in its development, but the results did look exciting that this combination of fulvestrin and some more cyclib 
certainly had activity um, and caused some responses and some stability of disease for patients who had metastatic um, hormone receptor positive breast cancer after a previous CDK4-6 inhibitor. So that's another drug, Simoracyclib, that um, hopefully we'll be seeing a lot more progress on and, you know, potentially in the future will become a treatment option for our patients with, uh, with metastatic hormone receptor positive breast cancer. So those are, I think, the two imp most important updates in metastatic hormone receptor positive cancers. Second, moving on to patients with uh, metastatic HER2 positive breast cancer, um, and uh, this makes up about a fifth of breast cancers overall, and is, um, these are breast cancers driven by the protein HER2. We know, as Dr. Hussein said, that we can target these cancers very effectively by using medicines um, against the HER2 protein that's causing the cancer cell growth in this case. So um, I think one important subset of updates for HER2-positive breast cancers related to patients with HER2-positive breast cancer and brain metastases, because unfortunately we know that patients with HER2-positive metastatic breast cancer um, are, are reasonably likely to develop brain metastases, and that has sometimes in the past been a, been a difficult um, site to treat. Many of our treatments that we give through IVs or by pills haven't always penetrated into the brain as well as we would like. But the really exciting updates um, from San Antonio were that actually a lot of the new and very effective treatments that are, have been under development over these past few years for HER2-positive breast cancer, they actually do seem to work um, quite well within the brain uh, and the spinal cord, and that, that's exciting and not hadn't been true previously of some of the treatments in HER2-positive breast cancer. So um, one important update there, which Dr. Hussein kind of uh, touched on and I would absolutely want to echo, is the drug uh, trastuzumab deruxtecan, or the brand name is NHER2, um, which is an antibody drug conjugate, it's called, or an ADC, meaning it's an antibody against HER2 that's attached to a chemomolecule. So it's sort of a smart delivery system for this chemomolecule to the HER2-positive breast cancer cells. Um, that drug has looked very exciting in HER2-positive breast cancer in general, with and without brain metastases. And at San Antonio, the authors, um, the researchers presented an update looking specifically at patients with brain metastases who participated in their uh, major clinical trial of trastuzumab deruxtecan and showed that the drug had benefits um, specifically in the patients who had uh, stable brain metastases, just like it had benefits in the overall group of patients as well. So that was good news um, for patients with HER2-positive brain metastases. And then likewise, um, the other exciting regimen that we uh, know has activity in HER2-positive brain metastases is um, the regimen that includes the pill tucatinib combined with the chemo pill Zolota or capecitabine and Herceptin um, and updates from the previously presented clinical trial of that regimen also continue to show that that's a regimen that has um, significant benefits for patients with active brain metastases, HER2-positive brain metastases. Um, and also, very importantly, like Dr. Hussein said, there was specifically a relatively small um, 
but important clinical trial looking at that regimen of tucatinib with capecitabine and Herceptin in patients who have leptomeningeal um, spread of their HER2-positive breast cancer, meaning HER2-positive breast cancer cells that are in the fluid surrounding the brain and spinal cord. Um, and that's historically been a hard type of breast cancer to treat, but this trial, which was conducted in a small number of patients, but it did show um, potential important activity for that regimen in patients with leptomeningeal um, HER2-positive breast cancer metastases. So that was her two positive breast cancer with um, with brain metastases. Then there was also, I think, one of the most important um, results of the San Antonio Breast Cancer uh, Conference was from a trial called the DAISY trial, and that was looking at the same drug, the trastuzumab deruxtecan, in patients both with sort of true her two positive metastatic breast cancer, and also in patients. Um, who would fall into, as Dr. Hussein talked about, this emerging category of breast cancer called HER2-low. So, you know, even as recently as one or two years ago, we would have thought of all breast cancers as being either HER2-positive or HER2-negative. Um, and the drugs that we used to target HER2 and HER2-positive breast cancer, we really didn't think benefited patients with HER2-negative disease. But just over the last year or two, it's become increasingly clear that we need to change that um, and that there's probably more of a spectrum of HER2 protein presence in breast cancers. Some of them are very positive um, and some of them are less so, sort of in this low positive category. But because there have been so many new um, and increasingly effective drugs that have come out targeting HER2, specifically these antibody drug conjugates, um, we actually have been seeing, and this was um, shown again at San Antonio this past uh, December, that these drugs can have activity not only in the true HER2-positive breast cancers, but also in the HER2-low breast cancers. And I think that was best underscored by the results of the DAISY trial, which showed that this drug, trastuzumab deruxtecan, for patients with metastatic breast cancer can work very well in HER2-positive metastatic breast cancer. We already knew that from exciting results over the past few months, but also actually can work quite well in patients who have HER2-low breast cancer, which means sort of medium expression of the HER2 protein on breast cancer cells. And also um, HER2, I don't even know what we'll call it. We have to have a whole new category, HER2 very low breast cancer, meaning we would have thought there was zero expression of HER2 protein on the breast cancer cells. But nonetheless, this new highly effective drug seems to work for those patients. So the DAISY trial was a really exciting um, result showing us that these drugs for HER2 positive breast cancer cells may work even with very, very low level presence of the HER2 positive, um, of the HER2 positive protein on breast cancer cells. Um, so two final things to touch on. One, um, I, I thought that there was an interesting and provocative result from a trial called the NIMBUS trial, which was looking at patients who have uh, HER2 negative metastatic breast cancer. This, so this could be either estrogen driven or triple negative metastatic breast cancer. So most of these had hormone receptor positive um, or estrogen driven metastatic breast cancer. All of these patients had what's called a high tumor mutational burden. 
So their tumor, when it was sequenced in the way that Dr. Hussein was talking about, when the genes of that tumor were sequenced, there were a high number of mutations in all sorts of different genes. Um, and for patients who had a metastatic uh, breast cancer with a high tumor mutational burden, in this trial, they received immunotherapy. They received a combination of two different immunotherapy drugs, um, no chemotherapy, no standard anti-estrogen medicine, sort of this newer class of immunotherapy drugs. Uh, and interestingly and importantly, some of the patients in that trial did respond to these two immunotherapy drugs and seemed to benefit from them, which is sort of a new uh, area of treatment in general in, in um, hormone receptor positive breast cancer in particular, but I think was an exciting result for patients with a metastatic hormone receptor positive breast cancer that has this high tumor mutational burden. And again, you'd have to figure that out by sequencing the genes of the tumor. It's not a high proportion of these patients, but um, certainly you would want to know if you were one of them because trials like this open up potential new treatment options based on immunotherapy. Um, and then the last area that I wanted to touch on and was asked to talk about was uh, treatment side effects, long-term side effects, management of symptoms, um, sort of less, uh, less clinical trials, treatment-related clinical trials. And I, here I would want to really mainly highlight one important um, result, which is that there were a couple of, um, of presentations and abstracts trying to understand better lymphedema. Um, which is swelling of the arm after breast cancer surgery, and how frequent is that, um, and what, what are the risk factors for it developing. And as I'm sure many on the call know, it's a really important um, and bothersome symptom for many of our patients who undergo a surgery for breast cancer. Um, and so in one of the presentations, the authors showed that at two years after an axillary lymph node dissection, all the lymph nodes under the arm removed, um, for a breast cancer surgery, there was a rate overall in a few, a few hundred women that they studied of about 25% of lymphedema, which is a reasonably high percentage. We certainly need to work on getting that down. And then interestingly, um, they looked at a number of risk factors for who would go on to develop lymphedema, and the rates of lymphedema looked higher in women who were black or Hispanic compared to white women. Um, and that's, you know, very important uh, data. The mechanism of that isn't clear yet, to my knowledge, and the authors, you know, uh, didn't seem certain about why that would be, but I think a really important result, and obviously lymphedema makes a huge difference to our patients, so we need to really be thoughtful about what we can do to address this. Um, and uh, then one other result from another trial looking at how we manage uh, lymph nodes under the arm showed that patients who even have a sentinel lymph node biopsy compared to no sentinel lymph node biopsy when they're having their breast cancer surgery um, can have a slightly increased risk of symptoms in their arm or their breast, like discomfort or swelling after surgery. So just two important results um, showing us and reminding us that it, it is relatively common to have those arm or breast-related symptoms after you've gone through a breast cancer surgery, especially a full axillary lymph node dissection, and we need to be continuing to improve how we assess those and how we address them for our patients. And I'll close there and look forward to your questions. Thank you. Oh, thank you so much, Dr. Wax. That was an excellent presentation, outstanding, and I'm sure there'll be questions for you during the Q&A as well. Thank you. Um, and. Um, I'm just going to say a few words about the services you can access from Cancer Care. Um, so Cancer Care is a national organization, um, and we provide 
um, primarily oncology social work support to people throughout the United States, um, and that support consists of a number of different things. Um, we do offer, we have a HOPE line um, that you can call, um, and that HOPE line um, is 1-800-813-4673, and you would speak with one of our oncology social workers. You can address what your questions and concerns are, and they will help you with them. And you can also visit our website at www.cancercare.org. The services that we provide are support. We also have online support groups. We offer case management services um, and both financial and co-payment assistance, so very practical assistance as well. Um, and because we recognize that people have tremendous uh, financial need at this time, Cancer Care in its history has always provided financial assistance and practical assistance as well. And the co-pay assistance is significant in terms of helping with your treatment costs. Um, and if for some reason we don't have it, our case management team will get you the services that you need from other organizations that exist. Um, um, and we also offer these workshops, and we have a number of publications as well that you can access. Um, in addition to cancer care services, there are many other, um, there are a number of breast cancer organizations that collaborated with us on today's program. And when you get um, Survey Monkey at the end of today's program, you will receive um, uh, not just the Survey Monkey, which we appreciate your completing, but also you will receive um, actually um, all those resources that you can access and contact. And now we're going to move on to the Q&A, and I'm going to ask Sadie to bring all of our speakers on board. And we're going to take as many of your questions as possible. And Sadie will explain to you how to queue up for questions, and we'll let the questions begin. Sadie? Yes, thank you. And ladies and gentlemen, if you would like to ask a question, please press star then the number one on your touchstone telephone. If your question has been answered and you wish to remove yourself from the queue, you may press the pound key. For those of you on the web, you may submit questions by clicking Ask Question. And we have a question from one of our online participants. Um, and I'm um, going to start with this question. Um, um, so for, for um, Dr. Wax, um, a question about um, people with early stage breast cancer. How um, do doctors monitor those patients? Should patients be asking about genomic testing and other testing when they have their annual visits with their physician? Yeah, that, you know, that's a great question and, um, and one that my patients ask me all the time. Um, you know, and I think the most important thing that we know we should be doing for breast cancer patients who've completed their surgery, you know, completed chemo if they needed it, maybe are continuing on an antiestrogen pill, most important things we know we can do to monitor those patients are to meet them, to visit with them regularly and hear if, you know, they've developed any new symptoms that are of any concern, to perform uh, for most patients once a year mammograms, very occasionally we also do MRIs, but usually once a year mammograms um, are all that we need. Um, and, you know, the, so those are two very important aspects that we follow. The unsatisfying answer um, to the question of should we do, be doing more, should we be doing genetic, you know, genomic testing, should we be testing tumor DNA that's circulating in the blood, should we be doing CT scans every six months, um, you know, those are all very valid questions that I get asked all the time. And, you know, there the unsatisfying answer is that as of now, um, those aren't tools, those sort of 
DNA tests or scans, those aren't tools that have been shown to be helpful in um, surveillance or monitoring of patients who are in follow-up for their breast cancer. Um, and so those aren't things that we do, the genetic, you know, screening um, or, uh, or scans. Those aren't things that we do routinely as just surveillance for patients who are in follow-up for breast cancer. Of course, if you're having symptoms, we look into that with scans immediately um, of the relevant area, but we don't just do them as a matter of routine for surveillance. I think that that could be a standard that's changing, and there's lots of clinical trials looking into whether, um, most importantly and relevant at the moment, looking at circulating tumor DNA every three months or six months or something, whether that may be a tool that we can use to monitor patients um, in follow-up. But as of now, those are, that's still a marker that is promising, but we don't know what to do with it. And so at the moment, it is just being looked at in clinical trials. Thank you. Thanks so much. Um, and um, for Dr. Hussain, um, what are the updates on near links for early-stage triple-positive breast cancer that presented at um, SABS this year. Yeah, that's uh, that's another very important question. Um, this um, this molecule is an oral medicine that is uh, um, in the category of uh, TPI or uh, tyrosine kinase inhibitors that is targeting the HER2 receptor, and uh, we know that we have an indication for the use of um, this molecule in uh, something called extended um, adjuvant setting. So this means the patient, for example, who has HER2-positive disease and ER, um, well, HER2-positive disease that has a locally advanced um, presentation, they receive their chemotherapy and now are finishing their anti-HER2 therapy, which normally would be a total of one year from starting chemotherapy. Uh, so at that point, we do think of that molecule in the setting of hormone receptor positive presentation and also in patients with lymph node positive where it could be offered to the patient uh, for one additional year after they finish the year of anti-HER2 directed therapy. Um, and I'm just saying that because in the trial, which called the Exonet trial, they did look at the whole category of HER2 positive patients and those uh, were the features that seem to get the most benefit from the use of this medication. Uh, so that would be completed ideally with their hormonal treatment or the endocrine treatment, which would typically go for a total of five to 10 years. So after the first year of anti-HER2-directed therapy, they will continue with the neurotinib to finish one year. The most common side effect of this medicine is diarrhea, which thankfully we know how to um, escalate the dose from the beginning in order to mitigate that and make it a lot more tolerable for our patients. So that came with uh, nice results, really, in the early stage setting. Uh, just one last thing, this medicine has also shown good results in the metastatic setting in combination with other medications, namely a chemotherapy agent, uh, capecitabine, and Herceptin, uh, which normally is looked at as a further line uh, of therapy down the line, maybe, in the fourth line setting or so. Excellent. Thank you. Um, and uh, a question. Um, 
for Dr. Wax. Are there plans to look at the benefits of taking Arimidex for more than 10 years for those at high risk of recurrence, of recurrence or metastasis? Mm -hmm. Yeah, <clears throat> that's a good question. Um, to my knowledge, there's no plans for new uh, new studies looking at that, but there, you know, we're continuing to follow very long term some previous studies um, that have looked at extending um, your post-operative anti-estrogen medications. Some of those studies, you know, many of them have stopped at 10 years, looked at sort of five compared to 10 years. Um, although some of them actually do go out to 15 years because they used, um, you know, patients may have used tamoxifen for the first five years and then switched to an aromatase inhibitor for five or 10 more years after that. So it can be up to a total of 15 years. Um, but, you know, so I don't, I don't know that there are going to be new results coming out about that, but we'll continue to follow the, the older results and what those results have shown so far, although obviously you have to follow these patients for a very long time to see as how things evolve. But you know what those results have shown so far is that um, you you do seem to um, get the most important benefits from your anti-estrogen medicines in the first five years after diagnosis. If you continue out um, to seven or eight or ten years for patients who had higher risk features of their breast cancer at diagnosis, then there can be some. Um, small additional benefits there, so it's not as important as the first five years. And to continue out beyond 10 years, um, there's not a lot of evidence to do, to do that, although, you know, I may do that in a select patient who had a really concerning um, initial breast cancer. I will say that the, what we, where we definitely hope to make future progress, and I think that we will, is in figuring out at the five or the 10-year mark who should continue? Are there some patients who should continue on their anti-estrogen medicine, whether it be Arimidex or anything else? Um, and, you know, the hope is that circulating tumor DNA, if we can um, measure it with, um, with a good and sensitive assay at, again, five-year mark, 10-year mark, may help guide us in terms of who needs more treatment, either with Arimidex or a similar medicine or changing to a different medicine. That's, all, that's certainly the hope of all of us in the breast cancer community. I would say it's unfortunately far too early to know if that will be the case. That would really be the best. Obviously, it would be have, to have some real-time marker at the five- or the 10-year mark to tell us uh, who needs to continue, who should switch to something else, and who can stop altogether. Uh, but we really don't have those data yet. Excellent. Well, I want to thank our speakers. You've been phenomenal. Actually, it's been an amazing program. and. I know that we could be on all afternoon um, because actually there are so many more questions, um, and which is a credit to all of you. I want to thank you also. Um, all of you have asked such great questions today, and um, so I do want to comment about the questions. So those of you who had, who had a chance to ask a question, um, or those of you who um, are waiting to ask a question or have a, yet, a question yet to ask, we ask you to take all of your questions back to your treating healthcare team because they actually know you the best and they actually know the most about you. So that's really um, very important. Um, um, also, um, for those of you, um, so please do that. That's really important. Remember, your healthcare team consists of many different disciplines to help you, and so that's really important to utilize your team. Um, also, um, you, we also welcome all of you to go ahead and, um, and also take advantage of the free services at Cancer Care and, of course, the many other organizations that we will be 
sending your way that are well vetted. We want you to actually be sure that you get your information from well uh, recommended organizations. Um, um, and so we will send you a listing of those when you get the SurveyMonkey from us as well. Um, most importantly, as we conclude the program today, I would not want any one of you to feel alone in coping with cancer, with breast cancer, or any type of cancer. I want you to now know that you're part of a very large community of support, not simply from your healthcare team, not simply from Cancer Care, but from all the organizations out there that are well-respected and can give you information as well. Your healthcare team is the best place to start, very important place to start. So I want to thank you all for your participation today, and I want to wish you all a very fine day. Thank you all. Ladies and gentlemen, thank you for your participation. This concludes the workshop, and you may now disconnect. Everyone, have a great day.